This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Good morning, David. Good morning, Angela. Good morning, Sophie. Isn't this good morning, everyone? Full studio. (laughs) Full studio of authors who have published before. So they're they're not new to 3CR, they're returning to 3CR. Old hands. And I'm going to start. Alice Fox is an author who teaches creative writing and did so over Zoom through Melbourne's lockdown. She may sound authentic, but she is just a character in Sophie Cunningham's latest book, This Devastating Fever. Welcome back, Sophie. Oh, thanks for having me. Alice is, quote, well north of middle age, although she's teaching a, a course on how to write a novel. She isn't progressing very well with her own, is she? No, and I think over the years she starts to feel that she shouldn't really be teaching how to write a novel if she doesn't know how to finish her own. <laughs> so what's a novel about? Her novel is about Leonard Wolfe, who was a colonial administrator in... I mean, he was in Ceylon in um, 19, early 20th century, and then when he left there he married Virginia Woolfe mm. um, and he was more better known as her husband and he was a writer of many books he was a publisher of many Mm. books and indeed Virginia's husband. Alice is very well researched about Leonard Wolfe. Where has she been to get her facts? I'm often asked if Alice is me and Alice is not me however Alice the travel itinerary is where it's closest to to me because I um so is Sri Lanka I went there to research another book but that's when I discovered the writings of Leonard Wolf and Sussex where they lived University of Sussex has got over 60,000 documents that Alice found. Leonard had. Well, I didn't read, go, read all of them, okay. I hasten to say. I'm not naughty to Alice. It was just impossible. I was only there for two or three weeks and I was a bit shocked by just how, yeah. how many boxes there were. And, and I learned that there's this, you know, he really was into extensive filing and keeping things. Yes, he kept he kept record of every the, more the music they listened to, uh, what they listened to at different, you know, different times of day. They both extensive diaries, note like bills, pet breeding certificates. He was very into his um, cats and dogs and he used to breed them. So there's a lot of lineage information, which was very tedious. And even Virginia's menstrual cycles. Well, that was sort of noted in her diary. (laughs) that, That he didn't actually have full documentation of that. But he was, yeah, he was a systems man. He was a colonial administrator. He administrated the marriage to some extent as well as people in Salon. This is what surprised me, that I thought Virginia Woolf's documents would be in England, but they're not. No. um, After she... There used to be a... It wasn't a thing to pay for archives. And I think English libraries just assumed that when when great writers died that they, they would receive all their papers. But Leonard was no fool. So, in fact, he got offered money by the Berg in New York, I think. And, so, and they're also in somewhere in Texas. So... He got offered a lot of money and off they went. So Alice has done an immense amount of research. So her first decision is, should the book be fiction or non-fiction? Yeah, and that's because they have they are real people and so much had been written about them. And I think Virginia 
at one stage was the most written about woman in the world. It's probably not the case. Princess Diana or someone else has probably (laughs) inherited that mantle. But it's very hard to write fiction. You write fiction between the cracks of what's Mm. known, but when so much is officially known or in theory known, it, it can be harder to find space. Now, I did find space, but... That was one of the reasons why it, the book does sort of hover very much between those, those two genres and it's very research-based as well. Alice also has an agent, Sarah, and Sarah's advice and their communication is very amusing. Now, one of the first bits of advice Sarah gives is no footnotes. So if the book wasn't non-fiction, why does it have so many footnotes? I... I don't always have – there's not always a logic to what happens in the book, I would have to say. That was just because when I – so I spent like 15 years trying to finish it, couldn't, and then during COVID I just sat down and finished it very quickly, at which point I stopped really processing my decisions. And um, so I decided footnotes would be a good place for all the interesting bits and pieces of research which wouldn't otherwise find its way into the book. Absolutely. And this is where a lot of the amusing little antidotes came from, like footnote about Henry Lamb. Interesting man, but Alice could find no particular reason to weave him into any substantial narrative in the book. Or about John Maynard Keynes. Alice had read a 1,000-page book on him, but he wasn't really worth mentioning apart from his footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he is actually worth mentioning. It is not in my book. He's one of the most significant economists of the 20th century, which is why I did so much research on him, because I kept thinking, surely such an interesting man has a place in this book. But just because people are interesting doesn't mean that they have a place in any book. No. Sarah, the agent's second piece of advice was more sex. Uh, Alice's first book had had sex in it and it proved popular. So, of course, the agent got more in revenue. Well, the title of this one is This Devastating Fever. How is that linked with Leonard Wolf? Leonard had a very complicated relationship to his sexual self or his sexual life and he talked about having been damaged by growing up in the Victorian era and going to an English boarding school, which happened to not just Victorian English people, but um, any number of people. And when he did feel sexual desire, he was very... It distressed him because he thought he was being a bad person. So he talked about it descending upon him. He he described it as this devastating fever. But over the years of writing, so it was always called This Devastating Fever. In some ways, the novel became less about sex than it had been when I started writing it. Mm. For I, I moved into more into politics or things that seemed to be more interesting. But once COVID arrived, the title suddenly, sort of the double meaning of, mm. of the title started to really, almost helped me. It was like a talisman that helped me pull the book together, really, the title. It kept me going. Well, sexual passion, uh, Leonard's pursuit of Virginia and their many years of marriage, both were fine wordsmiths, but it would, just wasn't the time or why did was it the inability to talk about? Well, they did, I mean, they. are you referring to the fact that they didn't have sexual intercourse? You have to be quite technical about what they did or didn't do because they, they did talk about it. I mean, they talked, um, they talked about it to their friends and they wrote letters mm. about it. And, in fact, Vita Sackville-West also wrote letters about her sexual encounters with Virginia and it's fair to say that neither Leonard nor Vita had what you would call conventional sexual mm. relations with her. So she just really 
didn't want to for a complicated range of reasons, which I go into in the book. But she was interested, like she had erotic connections with people and liked cuddling. And like she, so she was not like a cold person, but she just didn't actually. That was just too traumatic for her. Well, it seems that everybody else was talking about the threesomes and the homosexuality abundant in the Bloomsbury group. So, as you said, Virginia Woolf had a husband and also the lover, Vita Sackville-West, and their thoughts and conversations about this are what Alice, as you say, read between the lines. But this is Leonard's story. So the story deals with how he coped and cared for Virginia when she was mentally unwell. Just as Alice was caring for Hen over this time, the new time. So who and what was wrong with Hen? Hen probably had um, early stage, had Louis Body's dementia. I have had a relative die quite young of it, but that relative was not Hen and that mm-hmm. happened a long time ago. But that was an illness I was aware of, the implications of that illness. So she, that or a form of um, Parkinson's dementia. That's, that's what she had. And, of course, this is around 2020 and Hen goes into a nursing home and, as we know, coronavirus was rampant through nursing homes, causing many deaths. Leonard and Virginia had many family and friends who also died. The Spanish flu was one of the causes, as was World Wars. Leonard was really interested in politics. What was the interest? He just had that kind of brain. I think he was always trying to be... I mean, partly because of having been a colonial administrator and seeing what a damaging system it was. So Mm. even though he behaved quite badly in the way that a lot of those administrators did, he was self-aware enough to know that this was... It was a bad system and it it wasn't getting the most out of anyone or allowing them to to thrive in any way or indeed making... Anyway, he had a very... That's one of the reasons he left the civil service. Then he, be, when he returned, he became a socialist and was involved. He was interviewing workers up in, in North England, and he actually stood for Parliament at one point. But his work life was always quite constrained by needing to care for Virginia, so he didn't really want to do any work that took him away too far from her. But he, and then he wrote a lot, and this is one of the th- reasons why I kept going with the project when I wasn't sure how much more I had in me. Was he? His, he wrote a lot about the rise of fascism. Mm. and his just writings about Mussolini were so similar. Like you could have imagined you're reading about Donald Trump. Mm. And it just I just often found that he had a way of, of describing things that just felt really contemporary and that that allowed me to kind of draw out the parallels between then and, and now cause, just because of the quality of his work. You mentioned being about colonisation and it was called The Village in the Jungle and it was in the library in Sri Lanka that Leonard appeared to Alice. Now, I'm going to get Sophie Cunningham to read from page 70. The next morning, when Alice returned to her desk in the room in the library, she noticed that her notes on the village in the jungle had been typed up on a series of index cards. Cards Who used typewriters anymore? Who used index cards? And laid out neatly and chronologically on her desk. Imaginary Leonard was sitting there waiting for her in quite a smart pair of pants and jacket. This was, clearly, Leonard the publisher, the editor. Good morning, he said. I wanted to visit you in this glorious library. I was here, though not on this very spot, in 1960 when the superb university was being built. They gave me an honorary degree, you know. I also visited because I have become quite invested in this project of yours and hope to contribute to your research. 
Alice wondered how she would manage to maintain the requisite amount of objectivity now that Leonard was becoming so involved in her process, but she hoped that the fact he was imaginary might help her maintain appropriate boundaries. Thank you, she said. And occasionally Virginia would appear, and in the library that held uh, Virginia's works, Virginia said, stop Stop turning me into a victim. Please don't call me a lesbian or a feminist. And why are you writing about Leonard when I was clearly the better writer? These apparitions were informative and amusing. So Alice and Leonard actually shared other interests. There was writing, but there was also gardening, building greenhouses and pesticides. So there was a lot of interest there. Alice knew a lot about Leonard. They also shared the ability to digress, find other things to do. This was an easy way to move from past to present and gave Alice a way to put all sides of Leonard on the page. A novelist is thinking about environmental damage, but in researching and writing about Leonard and Virginia Woolf, she sees the parallels between their lives with wars, pandemics and politics getting more right-wing and what is happening now. The Devastating Fever is the book the novelist wants to write. Sophie Cunningham did. But I'm glad the the topic of sex has been raised because Mm. this comes up in Angela's book as well. But so does so much more. Part mystery, part futuristic, partly detective. Moon Sugar by Angela Meyer teases the reader with some unexpected twists and turns. So, Angela, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Josh has gone missing. Mila or Myla? Mila. Mila and Kyle begin their search, but there are some intriguing aspects regarding the why and Mm -hmm. the how of their search. Mila's relationship with Josh is different. Would you care to just... Yeah, I can I can talk about that. So she had come out of a long-term relationship and she was still sort of recovering from this and she decided quite on a whim that she would hire a sex worker, which was this young man, Josh. But he, you know, sort of opened her up in lots of ways and they did actually form a bit of a friendship. And then Kyle is his housemate and they're, they're very close friends. So this is two quite separate people who become quite devastated when he goes missing. And the name of the app she's using? Oh, Sugar Meet Me. Sugar yes. Meet Me. So Moon Sugar. I had sugar. to find one that didn't already exist. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe it will. <laughs> and Sugar Daddies, it plays on, on that to a certain extent. Mm. But the reasons for their search then make for an unconventional type of detective story. So, I mean, what leads Mila to search for Josh and what Kyle's approach differ in trying to find Josh? Yeah, so it is a kind of a sleuthing story and I was working on a lot of crime fiction in my job at the time so that was partly why I was so inspired by the authors I was right, uh, working with. But she's just going off the cuff really, you know. She's got a lot of emotions going on and she, she jumps on a plane and she goes overseas to where he was and thinks I'll just start asking questions, I suppose. And because she's like she's not sure if the police knew all of the circumstances, I guess, of how Josh might have been funding his trip or anything, whether that would be relevant. But unlike a detective mystery mm. where the detective in some ways is in control, she's not. She's not in control at all. 
And uh, Kyle is a little more controlled and, you know, he's someone who makes lists. Yeah, he goes about it in a more methodical way. But would you care to expand on the methodology that he uses? Well, first they try to contact the police in Berlin and talk to the right people and find out if there's more because it's a presumed suicide, but it doesn't feel quite right to them. Josh's clothes have been found. That's right, by the river. But not the body. No, and not not his phone. Uh, Yeah, so they both... They, they end up meeting up and I guess they're different ways of going about this. There's a sort of tension between them, but it becomes a bit of a, a, buddy, a buddy movie as well, I suppose, of these two But Kyle uses the app. Yes. So Kyle actually, I guess, uses himself as a bit of bait on, on the app to try and um, see if he can connect with some of the same people that Josh did. And he ends um, up having he ends sex, up having sex as a form of investigation. Yes. I mean, how better yes. to find out about somebody than <laughs> by, by having sex? But there is a, can we call it a sexual tension between Mila and Kyle? Yes, definitely. And um, it's it's multi-layered. It's, it could be sexual, friendship, romantic. And I do leave that up to the reader a little bit. And yeah. Josh is open in his sexuality. Yes. Kyle yes. is more conservative or... or well, he's just a, a straight white guy. This <laughs> is white guy. But, but he's, he's uh, well, he's divorced. He's discovering yes, yeah. his sexuality. But there's also a hint of a connection between Josh and Kyle, but hmm. different then yeah. as to that with Mila and Josh. Yeah, so between the three of them, I guess there's all these different tensions that I really enjoyed playing with they became very real people to me so yeah and then there is a disappearance or they discover the disappearance of another young man that Mm. had occurred earlier so that all fits into the detective sleuthing genre are they looking for a serial killer and all of that sort of thing but then the novel takes a bit of a turn and we come out of that detective novel and we learn about Xanthoria. Now, we have had a hint in the opening of the novel of this some 24 years before, which is where um, the novel began. The astronauts sit amongst his collection of irradiated samples. So we now come into a sort of science fiction type novel. Mm -hmm. What is Xanthoria? So Xanthoria is a type of lichen that does exist. At the start of the novel you find out it's been uh, irradiated in space and which is a bit of fun I guess how superhero stories often you know began in pulp fiction way back so I'm sort of playing with that but then you know we don't hear much about it for a little while in the novel but you do notice maybe Miller's having a few enhanced sensations and I'll just say for anyone listening this is a tiny bit of a spoiler but Hopefully, you know, not too much, but yeah. Well, in, in fact, that it, it has properties, and if I can read mm-hmm. out, uh, Marla is too nervous. She focuses on steadying her breathing. She's been poking around inside herself, her DNA. What she finds corresponds to shadows of people, shapes of land and languages. There is so much history inside her, beyond this lifetime, inside every person. Even in this lifetime, every moment is potent in its effect on your environment, on others and on the future, and even in how it reshapes historical perspective. When a lonely 40-year-old woman chose to create a profile on an escort service website, she had no idea that this would lead to such an extraordinary set of circumstances. Every moment is potent, but every effect is uncertain. It's as if this gives you, or the lichen, or Xanthoria, gives you an enhanced sense of self. Yeah, it, it has many layers to it, not just an enhanced sense of self, but of history, 
your environment. It's this connectivity as well. But this then ties back in some ways to exploring your sexual identity. Yeah, I think there's just the connection would be in the opening, you know, because at the beginning of the novel, Mila has just been sort of opened out by her encounters with this lovely young man, Josh, and then closed down again by grief. But the the lichen allows, yeah, anyone who has it to experience and almost quite psychedelic, I must say, like further opening and responsiveness to what's happening around them. And yeah, it definitely would be tied to sexuality. She has kind of repressed the fact that she's bisexual because she, she dated men and didn't really think that it was something she had to claim necessarily, but this also allows her to Well, both both Kyle and Marla have gone down that conventional path mm. and it hasn't actually worked for them. That's right, that's right. And Kyle, even as um, he's only 25 in the book and he's already been married and divorced, which actually reflects quite a few of my friends when they were younger. And that heteronormative, yeah, sort of path. Um, so I, in the novel, there's lots of alternatives and opening out from that, I suppose. Well, th- that, <laughs> that whole notion then of finding your potential if you go mm. beyond that sort of expectation, the social expectation and, and what locks you in place and those social constraints. But what's happening to Xanthoria? Mm. And who are the two groups involved behind it all? And That's right. So I did have to think of, I guess, the antagonists in, in the book. And there's just very big questions as well of if there is a substance that can have these very strong effects on people, who, who would exploit it, you know? I, there's some... I guess, sort of satirical elements about billionaires and their power. And yeah, there's two main groups that may or may not have access to this substance and how much of it is there in the world, you know, and what's happening to it, what happens long term to the people who might have ingested it. Yeah, so that all comes which, up. Which brings us back to basically the connection between Marla and Josh. They've actually taken part in an experiment. Mm. They've ingested Xanthoria. And they've been able to activate it in yes. a way. But these two groups that are... They want to know how it got activated. So they, yeah, because it, it's rare that it has actually occurred. So then there's, yeah, there's a, a massive sort of... So we go from a chase to a search. That's in some right. Way. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're in danger then, basically. They're, they're in danger, yeah. which yeah. explains why Josh was in danger. Mm-hmm. Miller's now in danger. But now... <laughs> You tease us yet again because one of these groups has sort of developed a cult around it in some ways. A woman in her 40s, dressed in flowing sheer pastels and muscular beneath, is led to the stage by two people in the usual robes. They sit her onto a chair. Josh squints and can see the tasers beneath their layers of clothing. But the woman does not protest, used to the rules. Or maybe she actually has a sense of belonging here. She sits for a long time in a soft spotlight then raises her hands, palm up, and looks to the light as if pleading. Her mouth begins to move, but she isn't making any sound, and then her lips stop moving, and she peers around the room. People shift when her gaze meets theirs, strong and unwavering. I am the master, John Wayne, she says in a deep, gravelly voice. So we've almost got a religious sect here. Well, you would be surprised how much real stuff I base this particular group on. Um, I get these amazing emails from one ritual magic group and 
this, it's just absolute gold. It's this real thing that exists. They have a YouTube channel and it's all very commercialized. You know, yeah, you can buy all their potions and things like that. And also just researching modern witchcraft and, and groups around this um, more in like the 70s and 80s than now. But it's there's so much real stuff that I drew on and, and mushed together. Well, but in mushing, mm-hmm. there is a connectivity which I think is part of what you're trying to say, how basically, yeah, opening up our potential and all these sorts of things. But you're also then playing with all of these genres, the detective, the chase, the the sort of mysticism and, and mm-hmm. future science fiction even. How did you manage to contain and control them all? I honestly started out trying to just write a thriller, but it's just something that seems to happen when I'm when I'm writing that things just sort of expand out and then... And then, yeah, as you say, I have to find a way to contain it all. Well, bringing it towards the end, the only reason to continue to pursue the lichen's power is its ability to enhance this intimacy Mm. with the world. So the ending of the novel, in many ways, touches on the notion of moon sugar or the the moon uh, sugar app um, in seeking intimacy at Mm. whatever age you are and who you are and the potential within you. Yes, and that can come from people, it can come from the environment, it can come from, you know, many sources. And um, I think that's one of my main themes in writing, yeah. Well, a quirky novel, it's called Moon Sugar by Angela Meyer, and it's from Transit Lounge, Jan. Right, well, I'm going to connect Moon to the very cover of Sophie Cunningham's book, This Devastating Fever. What is this comet here? It's Halley's Comet. As I was listening to Angela, I felt there were so many parallels and yes. desire to mush being, being a big I've, one. Well, I've never heard sex, sex described as mushing. <laughs> However, Halley's Comet, Leonard wrote very beautifully about seeing it. It hung. It was very bright and hung very heavily in the sky in 1910 and I saw it in the 80s when it was much more disappointing experience. But it is nonetheless seeing Halley's Comet is one of the things that connects Alice and Leonard, one of the many things. Right. <laughs> so we've got, we got moon and uh, space and... And Haley's comment and, and sex and sex all in together or, or lack of <laughs> <laughs> lack of. So I was talking with Sophie Cunningham about her book, This Devastating Fever, and I was talking with Angela Meyer about Moon Sugar from Transit Lounge. This is a three CR podcast, and this is published or not.